Hello, and welcome back to Resonant Reels, where we talk about movies and TV shows in a sound design kind of lens. I'm Chandler, and I'm here with my buddy Adam. I'm Adam. I'm here with my buddy Chandler. It's crazy busy time. I feel like, you know, holiday season's getting in there. I mean, you're traveling a lot, of course, with work, so. I'm in Boston right now. We just got here today, so I had to do my setup in the new hotel room. Yep, I'm back in East Texas with my partner's family because we kind of spent Thanksgiving here and we're, you know, helping out and doing stuff and being freelance people as we are. As it goes. But I'm excited. So this episode, we're focusing on hidden gems of this year, movies that kind of came out this year that maybe not got got a lot of, you know, you know, airtime on commercials or like, you know, reviews or and what have you because this year has definitely been dominated by the um, Barbenheimer hype <laughs> and Taylor Swift. Let's be clear, like also the Taylor Swift concert was in theaters was big. So true. yeah, a lot has dwarfed, I feel like a lot of, you know, movies that have come out this year. So this is exciting to like find hidden gems. I'm really excited because we both kind of picked comedies, it feels like. So it was like really refreshing to not have to be, <laughs> you know, drained emotionally for once adam yeah watching me yeah i'm watching these was um a very nice fresh of breath well god fresh of breath air yeah that's the phrase breath of fresh air clearly i'm doing well i woke up or not whoa whoa oh my god I woke up on a bus today so that's how i'm doing uh yeah no i our movies are very different from each other um, but they were both really good. I liked them a lot, and I'm excited to talk about them. Yeah, so I'll let you start it off with your movie. Hell yeah. Okay, so my movie for Hidden Gems of 2023 was Bottoms, directed by Emma Seligman. I did not know what to expect going into this movie, and what I got was not even vaguely on my radar and I loved it. Oh my god, it was so, so funny to me because this is one of those movies that was just like, we're going to be a satire of all of these other genres and tropes, and they did it in a way that's like reminiscent of, for example, like the scary movies or like the Not Another Teen movie, like, like, along those lines but like in a much more like film way like if that makes any sense like i'm still like oh this was a film like this is an art piece it's not just like a satirical spoof yes yes and yes and to everything adam just said because it's like <laughs> it's, it has the vibes of like not another teen movie which was like you know spoofing 80s you know teen comedies and coming-of-age movies of the 80s and 90s and such. But, like, also it's, like, its own crazy satirical nonsense thing. And it's very it's very Gen Z-oriented, but being, like, you know, coming as a young cusp millennial myself, I, I was still, like, into it because I enjoyed it. But also there's things of, like, what the hell? What the fuck? Yes, there were so many times I literally was watching this alone in a different hotel room and my and I was just like cracking up and I was just like, what the fuck? That was so funny, like out loud, genuinely to myself, because I was just like so 
enamored with things that this movie chose to do and like the jokes that they chose to make. So we have two main characters, which are PJ and Josie. And we learned very quickly uh, early on that they are like your typical, and this is where the film gets its name, Bottoms. Uh, it, it has to do with them being like bottom of the, the social status that exists within their high school, basically. Um, so they are very unpopular and they are also both gay. So they both uh, identify as lesbians. Um, and like the narration that we get in the first like 10 seconds over top everything is like, so crude and funny of just like uh, truly i feel like the way that people speak to make fun of the way that like gen z talks like that is what it was and i don't necessarily want to like repeat the things that that were said because it makes me uncomfortable um but when you're watching the movie it's like uncomfortable in a very funny way like i was in it i was in it so PJ and Josie are our two main characters. And it's basically like the classic thing of like, this is our year and we're going to get fucked. And like, we're going to like date so many women and all this stuff. And it's just like, okay. And then we also learn again, it's very like, info dump in the beginning because that's how these movies typically go is like you're gonna learn all the characters names and their social status and like who's in love with who in the first like 15 minutes and this movie follows the same kind of formula and so we find out that they are both interested in two different cheerleaders um that are at the school isabel and Brittany. josie is into Isabel and PJ is into Brittany and like it's it's one of those things again too where it's like you, you find out like oh Josie's been crushing on Isabel whatever and then it's like well this is the year that I'm finally gonna talk to her and you're like oh you haven't even like spoken to this person who goes to your school yet either okay copy like heard and the school is Rockbridge Falls and the mascot of the school is the Vikings and just like in any good teen movie Isabel who is the cheerleader that Josie is interested in is dating the quarterback of the football team whose name is Jeff. Jeff is a lunk of a human being. Um, That's very kind of you. (laughs) He, like, honestly, I need to watch something for my own sanity that this actor has been in so that I know what he is actually, like... I don't know, something different from this because this could have been like an AI, honestly, like animated character. The, it was, I know I've said this in other podcasts, but like lights on nobody's home. Like he is in his own brain and that's where he lives. Like he was giving Ken from Barbie, like Mojo Dojo or whatever that is the Mojo Dojo Casa dream house or whatever. I don't know. People will correct me, whatever. I know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Like truly that, but like without any regard for anything else other than other than Jeff. Um, and what where we start to see even more satire with this is like there are things throughout that give us a, a clear sense that like this is an adult movie and this is not a movie like for kids. And a lot of that actually comes in the sound design, which is so 
good. I loved the choices that were made for this. Um, so like we would be in a scene like in the school, in the hallway, for example, and we're listening to dialogue between two characters. But if you zone out for a second and you start listening to like the hall announcements, it's it's like the morning announcements being like, everybody get horny for Jeff. Like, here comes Jeff. Like, and then it'd be like Jeff arrives and there's just like girls screaming from the crowd of like, come on my tits and like stuff like that. And like, just so random. And it's, it's, he is a caricature of what a like teen movie high school football player is. It, this it's just it was it was wild um and all of the other football players are just kind of like useless like we don't know any of the other ones except one who is like you know as there's always a second in command uh to the popular quarterback it, it, we have our second in command uh character who i honestly don't know if i ever heard them say his name but he's like He's the character trope that like figures out that the main characters are lying about things and whatever. He's just kind of there to like push the plot along, really. But anyway, so I, there's so much with this. I feel like I just don't even know where to start. But I guess talking like cohesively. So there is a fair that is happening and Josie and PJ go to the fair and um this is when we get introduced to our character Hazel um who literally just pops up into the screen and one of my favorite things in the end credits was watching the outtakes of that actress popping up into the camera because it was very ridiculous every single time um and it was clear that that's how it was supposed to be but they they meet up with Hazel and uh we learn that Hazel takes things very literally which becomes important in just 30 minutes after this scene um, and so uh Josie has her arm in a sling and uh Hazel asks like oh my god what happened and PJ starts laughing and says like oh my god she ate shit and Hazel's like wait you like literally ate shit and then they were like no and then like somehow through the dialogue miscommunication it got settled upon that PJ and Josie spent their summer in juvie and so <laughs> that they were in a juvenile detention center literally like arrested in juvie um, for the entirety of the summer and that is how Josie wound up with a broken arm it was due to like fights at juvie while they're there, they spot Isabel and Brittany, the two uh, like popular cheerleaders. And we have my, one of my favorite tropes. It's the classic, like, are we pan away from our character to who they're staring at? And like the love music fades in and, and we start to get like a very like dream sequence moment of Isabel and <laughs> as Josie's staring at her and then it cuts very quickly as Jeff gets introduced and we you know learn that's where we learn Jeff and Isabel are together they are a couple we kind of just end the the carnival like with this weird glory of Jeff by everybody and our next scene is um Josie and PJ are in the car to like leave 
and Isabel and Jeff are having a fight. And um, I, literally, I literally pulled up the quote because it's so ridiculous. Isabel is basically like accusing Jeff of being like, why are you always flirting with other girls? Which like, I shouldn't say the word accused. She's calling him out because he is flirting with other girls. And Jeff says, okay, I'm sorry that I looked at Mrs. Riley and then grazed her left tit. All right. And then, (laughs) and like, that's his response. And so meanwhile, while we're hearing this argument, PJ and Josie are like fighting over like, PJ's trying to PJ's trying to like be a wingman for Josie, right? She's trying to be like, ask Isabel if she wants to get in the car, like, like whatever. And so finally she does and uh is like, oh, do you want to like do you want a safe ride? And Isabel gets in the back of the car and Jeff stands in front of the car and is like not letting them leave. And like here's the thing that this movie does so well, especially with the sound design, is that it makes the stakes so much higher than what they actually are like throughout this entire movie there are so many situations that are like ramped up and you're like oh my god and then you have to like remind yourself what the characters are actually saying or like actually doing in that moment and you're like wait the stakes are so low like what is happening and so essentially jeff refuses to move they tell josie to just drive so she doesn't even hit the gas, takes her foot off the brake, and the car is slowly inching forward. But oh my god, the way that this was directed and designed, you would have thought that Josie slammed her foot on the gas because the car creeps up ever so slightly to Jeff and barely touches his knee before the car comes to a complete stop. And all of a sudden, Jeff, like, collapses holding his knee it's like oh my god the quarterback has been brutally injured um the football players like all notice that something's wrong and they come sprinting down the parking lot they are like hopping over the hoods of cars like doing like parkour that's so unnecessary because the street is wide open to get to jeff and they like are cradling Jeff on the ground. And we have this shot of like, clearly from like a drone or something that's just looking like straight down at them all. And his like second in command guy is like, you won't get away with this. Like as TJ and Josie and Isabella are still in the car, like just like what happened? Like, oh my God. But their reactions are like equivalent to something horrible happening like their reactions are like oh my god i can't believe this i can't believe we did that i can't believe this happened and it's like the the car almost didn't even touch him like that's how slow the car was moving that scene in and of itself with all the football players they are the literal personification of fragile masculinity to a fault and it's so amazing that this movie immediately is like this is what these people represent. We hope you get it because we're just going to keep playing off of that dumb trope we've just made up. And it's amazing. <laughs> so our next scene, they're, they're all back at school. My favorite random part of this whole movie is Mr. G. And Mr. G is played by none other than Marshawn Lynch. And for those of you out there who don't know who Marshawn Lynch is, he is literally the running back for the Seattle Seahawks football team. And he 
is actually like a large part of this film and does it flawlessly he nails this character um i did look up two things which i actually think are really cool number one if you have not watched Murderville, definitely go watch Murderville. Marshawn Lynch is one of the guests on Murderville, and that is why he was asked to be in this film. They saw him on Murderville and were like, oh, surely we're going to ask him to be in this movie and play this character. He improvised almost all of his lines which when you're watching, you absolutely get that vibe. But I'm sure that the bloopers were very funny, but I'm sure that there was so much more breaking that happened than what we saw. But something that I thought was very sweet was that apparently he was not sure about whether or not he wanted to accept this role at first for this movie and ultimately decided to say yes because he viewed it as a way to rewrite and acknowledge his regret for the mishandling of when his younger sister came out to him in high school. So I thought that that was cool. So anyway, we've got Marshawn Lynch just saying some of the most off-the-cuff things ever. He plays a history teacher who's not a very good history teacher. Like, the school doesn't have good teachers, I think, at all. Because we only see, like, one of them, and it's him, and he's a terrible history teacher. And I'm just like, oh, God, I is this, like, an analogy for, like, how our American education system is right now? Because it might not be far off. Well, literally, our first, like, classroom scene with him is he's got Treaty of Versailles written on the chalkboard. And then he's like, all right, everybody. Did it happen? And then this kid raises his hand to like answer. And then Marshawn Lynch goes, yes, it did. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to read this book. And then <laughs> like, that's the class. So anyway, so we're in this class with Marshawn Lynch and everybody is kind of like whispering at like Josie and PJ and but more specifically Josie for like hitting Jeff with her car in walks Jeff uh, and Jeff is on crutches and acting like a child um, and he takes his place at the back of the classroom which all, there is weird but very funny like Jesus imagery for all of the football players and it's always like a last supper vibe so like the way the desks are all set up is like Jeff is in the middle and all the football players desks are like lined up on either side of him and like they've all got signs he literally has a sign taped to the front of his desk that says go Jeff and it's him in a jock strap like these posters are just around the high school and so <laughs> and so he whispers to Josie he was like hey and then he has an Erlenmeyer flask in in his hand and he goes this is gonna be you breaks it over his desk we're in a history class he has an Erlenmeyer flask in his hand breaks it just I literally don't know what I was expecting but I didn't actually think it, he was just gonna like shatter it and then he holds up the glass and like does the like cut across his neck thing to her and <laughs> Marshawn Lynch just goes dude you couldn't like make that analogy with your hand or something like <laughs> doesn't call out anything about the threat is just like did you have to break the glass like <laughs> and then even so to add to the ridiculousness isabel walks up to josie and is like i hear you crippled my boyfriend with your car and josie's like you were literally in the car when it does she's like weren't you literally in the back seat and so <laughs> and so it just it just keeps getting 
weirder and weirder and weirder. And so at this point, especially after that whole car thing. Well, also, also one of the football players like they've. So this movie sets up so many jokes so well and like you don't get a payoff for so long. There's a football player just in a cage. And and the whole time when this scene happened, I was like, why the fuck is there a kid in a cage? Like, what the? And I had to wait like a good like, you know, another like hour through the movie to finally get my fucking answer. But it was a great. But it's just like, why? Why? (laughs) And then also, like, throughout, like, this, like, they have, like, morning announcement things or just, you know, random announcements from the principal or whatever. And there's a lot of this, like, ongoing talk about how the rival school Huntington, right? Huntington High, like, murders people. And I was like, what the hell? Initially, me thinking here, I'm like, is this just some, like, crazy, like, sports pro football propaganda for the school? (laughs) And, like, they're using this as just, like, bullshit means to like we gotta amp up and get ready for a pep rally to defeat our school rivals but it's like no, no we we learned an answer later of like why they call them killers and everything yes so no over so that's what i was gonna say is like over the announcements we get like the principal being like and now an announcement from a student like just unnamed no one cared and it's just this this girl being like last night i was uh, attacked by a football player from huntington like who pinned me to the hood of my car and punched me or whatever and like that added to the like you know fear and lore of like huntington is coming for the viking the vikings and then right after that, the principal gets back on. There were so many good quotes in this. Please hold. The principal gets back on and says, over the intercom, just goes, could the ugly, untalented gays please report to the principal's office? And with, and it's like, PJ and Josie just know that it's them and like go to the principal's office. And I'm like, oh my God. Because like Jeff just constantly dogs on... Josie and PJ's looks as well like all the like everybody pretty much does except the girls like all the guys all the football players are just constantly like dogging on them whatever and so while they're in the principal's office they basically lie because the principal is like threatening to expel them for for tapping Jeff with this car and causing him an injury and so Josie comes up with a lie that says that they were practicing for a feminist self-defense club and then they decide to actually like set it up PJ and Josie do so they now start this feminist self-defense club um, on campus they they say that it's all about like female empowerment and they get Hazel to help them but it's really like PJ just wanting to like be around hot girls and it's Josie feeling really uncomfortable with everything and not really wanting to do it at all. And, but like going through with it because that's her archetype is the friend who just follows along with everything and gets stuck in the bullshit. Hazel helps set it up. And then they ask Mr. G to be the sponsor of this club. And he's like, yeah okay sounds good like he's he like doesn't really give much pushback at all he's like yeah i could and because he's like wouldn't it be better to ask like a female teacher and they're like yeah but we don't like any of them he's like no that's valid yeah i'm in like (laughs) he's he's low-key like misogynistic but like is 
is the head for this like feminist club whatever okay so pj and and um josie get to the get to the first meeting and pj's pissed because it's all quote unquote like ugly girls uh it's like none of the hot cheerleaders that she wanted to like show up to this thing and so they um start their their first meeting and it's just like straight up aggressive and basically we have like a full-on fight club that is what this has this is not about like female empowerment it's not about self-defense they have started a fight club and so they're teaching this class from the perspective of everybody believing this rumor that they spent their summer in juvie and were in fights all the time and then like in trying to make themselves like seem cool like poor Josie is just like so awkward and put on the spot and basically like confesses to murdering someone in juvie out of like self-defense but then like tries to take it back and be like she came back to life though and like <laughs> like doesn't want to actually commit to like having murdered somebody in this lie that she's telling that was like meeting one is they just start like kind of beating the shit out of each other so we get this montage of like girls getting paired up and like punches that just look sad and like but then like then a, a, a nasty looking kick will land and then it's like as they start to land these like actual blows and kicks and stuff shit starts to get bloody like all of a sudden like you know someone's got like blood dripping out of their mouth like they just got beat the fuck up like it got very it gory doesn't seem like a, the right word necessarily but i guess in a way it just gets bloody like it just got it got bloody it gets a little more visceral than you expect it to because they're just like we're gonna show like real brutality here so like great job to like you know makeup and effects department for like you know making all that look so believable because i was just like damn and like like they just show up the next day to school all like beaten up and like scars and cuts and everything and it's just like and no one bats an eye no one it was so yeah and like what i do enjoy about this movie is that it did a really cool job at like this type of like i don't know violence without it being sexualized there was like nothing really actually sexualized about the, uh, the the women like in this movie in in this moment because I feel like a lot of mainstream media it's like okay even Black Widow is like supposed to be kind of sexy you know like through all this like action beat people up get beat up stuff like this is just a bunch of kids not knowing what the fuck's happening and then all of a sudden beating the shit out of each other. And I'm, I'm hoping that's why, too, considering these are supposed to be high schoolers, but also, like, nothing about anything in this movie read as high school, except for the fact that, like, we're really told that it's a high school. It's one of, because, again, playing on the trope of, like, in teen movies, oftentimes you're getting, like, 30-year-olds playing 18-year-olds who are just absolutely shredded and, like, make you feel horrible about yourself when you're watching it as an 18-year-old. So <laughs> they have, like their club just starts to like gain some traction and like more girls come in like pj winds up giving this like impassioned speech at the top of one of the meetings about how like don't be late the doors are gonna close at 315 like not 316 certainly not 317 she's like 315 
be here. And then, like, starts going off. And as she's going, we get another one of those, like, Josie stares off into the distance. We hear the doors open and Brittany and Isabel walk in and everything's, like, slow-mo. And we have the love music. And PJ turns around and sees them and then just immediately stops, like, in her tracks of this, like, speech. It's like, oh, hey guys, okay, yeah, thanks for coming. Go ahead and have a seat. And then, like, someone speaks up and is like, weren't you saying, like, just to not be late? Like, that's next next week. Next next week. Yeah, this week's fine. <laughs> that's for next week. Yeah, we're talking about for next week. Like, <laughs> and it was so good. And so then we've got Isabel and Brittany in on this, like, montage of just people getting beat the hell up. Hazel brings up that, you know, maybe it could be, like, good to have one of these meetings to actually, like, talk to each other and, like, grow as a group because, like, these girls are really enjoying getting to know each other and, like, maybe they don't just practice self-defense all the time. And so they sit down in this circle and PJ out the gate just goes, yeah, so, you know, so who's ever been raped? And, like, just, and and then, like, everyone just, like, sits there and she's like, gray area stuff counts too and then like all of the girls in the circle like wind up raising their hand and mr g is sitting in the circle and is just like looking around and like being there like literally just present um and then they all start going in on like individual sad like trauma moments and like we've get we get one who is like hazel who talks about like the divorce of her parents and like how her her mom is like i don't having a midlife crisis because of it and how she like doesn't feel like she has any friends or like is really supported in any way and then like we have this other girl who's also a cheerleader but has i don't i don't know if they ever actually say her name in the movie either um but has a tale about like being stalked like she had she mentions like a couple times prior to this moment like her stalker and she talks about how she's like yeah i keep going to the police for my about my stalker and they keep telling me i have to go online to fill out a form and then the form says i have to call a number and then i call the number then they tell me that they can't do anything until he tries to kill me which he says he is going to but that's not good enough so it's just like really frustrating and i was like whoa like that and the thing is like that is such a common like that is like such a common reality for people like that is not something that's uncommon like in real life let alone like that trope in like whatever every single law and order svu case episode that comes out every three weeks you know what i mean like that's that's a that's a real thing that happens but it's just like so blown over we jump to Brittany cheerleader that like pj's interested in being like she acknowledges her character trope in the film multiple times and she even says like yeah my personality is whatever isabel wants to do um like says that earlier because she's just like stone-faced blank-faced all the time drink in her hand just kind of present but in this moment she she's like yeah, like everybody always just like looks at me and like how beautiful and hot I am. And they don't know that I'm super smart. And like, I own my own jewelry business. I'm really fucking successful. And it's like, even that is a trope. It's the trope of the the hot friend who's actually also secretly smart. Like, but the way they handle it is like her telling it in this circle of secrets. And then we jump to Josie, who just starts 
down a horrible field of lies and talking about the horrible trauma and guilt from being in juvie which she was never in and talking about like having to like fight people and people like placing bets on her and like just like destroying and really hurting other girls and how she's never gonna be able to like recover from that and has nightmares about it all the time blah blah, blah. and this is one of those moments where she's lying we all know she's lying as an audience member she's going off on this and our sound design kicks in and isabel starts looking at josie with these like i'm falling for you eyes and emotions and like the camera starts to zoom in a little bit on josie as isabel is like falling in love with honestly a very grotesque story that josie is weaving about like the violence that she committed and violence that was committed against her um which is all fabricated this whole meeting where like everyone is like sharing their traumas and everything it's it almost feels like a 180 in the movie because it's making you try to laugh throughout it because it is a comedy movie but like also it's like this shit's real too and it's like you feel very conflicted inside of like because it's just how how quick it happens how there's like like these are just young girls and high these are high school girls who who are just trying to like deal with the terribleness of being teenage girls growing up in a very masculine dominated society that favors men a lot that's not too far of a stretch from our actual reality cuz you know art reflects reality to try to make a point and it's just it's so weird because it's just no one knows how to help each other so they just everyone just trauma dumps to hope that helps and like it kind of helps but it's also just like i don't know how we you know grow and fix from this because you know we we don't know anything else like we're trying to grow up in this terribleness and it it's so sad all these stories do come from like real stories and everything and you feel that and then, and then, of course, you got Mr. G there just, like, listening to all this. And then he shares about his divorce. And then, yeah, he goes, I'm going through a divorce. Man, that feels good to talk about. This is a great space. And then he's like, men should go to therapy. And then <laughs> and then Josie's, and then they all just kind of, like, nod in agreement. And then Josie's like, I think that's a great place for us to call it for today. So it's after this meeting that there's, like, a a moment. Hazel comes home one day. And uh, she hears her mom, like, clearly fucking around with somebody upstairs. And she looks up and her mom is with Jeff. And that is fucking crazy. So then Hazel winds up telling uh, PJ and Josie. And Josie is out at a lunch with Isabel. What is um, very funny, which is hidden. I don't know if this is something you would have caught. I feel like I consume a lot of queer media, but the diner is called But I'm a Diner, which is a reference to a movie called But I'm a Cheerleader, which is about a cheerleader going to like a like a camp to not be gay anymore. And the character, the main character is Natasha Leone, and their server at But I'm a Diner's name is Natasha. 
And so there was there are a lot of like references to like Revenge of the Nerds, Breakfast Club, but I'm a cheerleader. Like there's a lot of stuff like of the, kind of of those films referenced like throughout this movie, which is a fun I spy. So Josie tells Isabel Jeff is cheating on her. Isabel's reaction was crazy. It was just like her devolving into this fit of laughter. And she got this like kind of scary look on her face that I was like, oh, that is a woman unhinged. Like that is that is someone who is at their last straw. So at the cafeteria the next day, which is when we get our big Last Supper Jesus imagery with the football team, uh, she confronts Jeff with Hazel behind her of, are you still cheating on me? And he's like trying to deny it, but he's denying it in like the worst like douchebaggy like way of like, baby, no, like I would never cheat on you again. Like just the one time with your sister four times, you know, like, and like, just like keeps like going back on himself. He, he was like, I did not fuck Hazel's mom. And then Hazel's like, I literally saw you. And he looks at her and points and goes, shut up, nerd. I fucked your mom. And then <laughs> and he's like, oh, wait. Uh, and then Isabel's like, we're done and walks away, which leads us to our next big plot point, which is she wants to get revenge on him. They, as they they are trying to figure out like what <laughs> the best revenge is, uh, they're like brainstorming whatever, and they're like blah blah blah. blah. And Hazel speaks up, and Hazel goes, "What about a bomb?" And then they all look at her. She's just like, you know, just like a small bomb, you know. And then PJ turns around and is sarcastically like, <laughs> "Yeah, Hazel, let's do terrorism." And then turns back around. Um and so what winds up happening is they wind up like going to his house and he has a CD player in um he is listening to um Totally Clips of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. Yes, thank you. And just having like a moment with himself and they just start throwing eggs at his windows and like TPing his house, which is a very like old school, you know, fuck somebody's day up sort of thing, which was funny. So that's happening. Josie is just standing with PJ, but then is like, you know, I'm going to go see if Isabel needs help keeping watch. So she goes and gets in the car with Isabel and they're talking and having kind of like a moment. And so then as they're having this moment, we cut to Hazel is underneath Jeff's car, literally planting a bomb. Because as we learned when PJ and Josie were joking about having been to juvie and it got taken seriously, when PJ said, yeah, Hazel, let's do terror terrorism uh hazel took it seriously and has now planted a bomb on jeff's car and so she sets it off and it starts counting down from 15 and i honest to god thought hazel was gonna fucking die because she just starts panicking as it's counting down and she's not getting out from underneath the car and then when she goes to she hits her head really hard and then like falls back and i was like oh my god this bomb's gonna go off and hazel's still gonna be underneath the car not what happened but then we cut to Josie and Isabel are right about to kiss and the bomb goes off and Jeff's car is lit on fire and everybody like all of the girls from this fight club like look and they're like oh my god 
oh my god and they all get into the car and try to escape and in classic fashion because again we have to keep reminding ourselves that these are high school girls they can't, they misjudge the width of the turn that they have to make to get down the street so the car's on fire behind them they're in this van and they have to put it in reverse to give themselves more room to finish the turn to drive away from the scene of the crime oh my god it was so so good oh it was so good then we get this like fight club moment gets um which is important to note that the second in command football player tim like spied in one day and like saw them all like learning how to fight and stuff and like that was a whole thing and like then he threatened josie and pj in the in the hallway it was like listen you know this little fight club thing is really cute but don't you think it's time to like end it we've got the big game coming up and I really think this is starting to draw attention away from us, away from the football team. Mainly away from Jeff. Mainly away from Jeff, yeah. Which is like the whole point. And Josie's like, I literally don't think that's possible. And let's just hold up the flyer of Jeff in the jockstrap that says, get horny for Jeff. Uh, so the, the club is like facing getting disbanded. And especially after this bomb fucking incident and in that pj and hazel start to get into it and start to argue and pj winds up like hitting a sore spot for hazel which she had shared in the circle was that she doesn't feel like she has any friends and she feels very lonely and misunderstood and pj basically like humiliates her and saying like that she doesn't have any friends and nobody you know likes her and whatever blah 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 Uh, like basically calling her like a loner and all this stuff which is a sad moment in the film it's it's yeah while that happens we get a Josie Isabel moment which oh my god I'm a sucker for this type of shit man I was so in it and Isabel comes over to Josie's place and in her room and it's like such a it's such a typical high school i feel like lesbian room where it's just cool it's just a cool room you know basically like they it's the it's the josie sitting on the edge of the bed because everything is just like awkward and like you don't know where to sit or what to do with your hands or anything and isabel like comes and sits next to her and they start kissing and then very tastefully you know they just take off their jackets which alludes to the fact that they're starting to like undress and then we get like a someone's on top scene and then the camera just kind of like pans up as we hear some some faint sounds of things and um we we assume that they that they have sex that is being mirrored by a scene that pj is over at britney's house and um they're having like a really kind of like fun flirty time it's uh doing homework studying whatever and like they're flirting about like britney's like itty bitty dainty weak hands or whatever and um pj like takes the move and like kisses britney and it seemed like a good kiss until she kind of pulled back and saw that Brittany was not interested in kissing again. Brittany was like, I'm sorry, I'm straight. Like, I, I'm so sorry if you got the wrong idea or whatever. And PJ's like, oh, no, like, okay. Like, yeah, it's all good. Like, how do you recover <laughs> from that? I can't imagine. This is horrible. And so, like, leaves. And so there's a pep rally uh, the next day for the big football game against Huntington. PJ and Josie like 
kind of talk and like Josie tells PJ that like her and Isabel like had sex that they hooked up and PJ's like oh my god you're like serious whatever so then at this pep rally Tim uh oh my god starts giving a, a speech well hold on hold on before that hold on this pep rally is like notorious of like all of these like teen comedy pep rallies in ho- these high school movies right because of course it's like it's like it's a homecoming game or what have you nonsense and like of course like the cheerleaders are gonna do their thing first and literally like it's not like stereotypical. They just they just like do it blunt and just like, like yes, yeah, sex appeal. So they just dump water on the head cheerleader that's in a white tank. They literally, yes, the two cheerleaders, they're all wearing white shirts and they just take like giant big gulp cups of water, the two behind her, and dump it over her head so it drips down her her white shirt. That's it. That's the whole act for the cheerleaders, the end. And then so then Tim's like, all right, now who's heard of this little feminist fight club that's been gaining traction there's like some some claps some cheers whatever and, and they were like oh tim tim goes okay well i would like to invite um one of them down to show us what they've learned that he's like who is it um hazel hazel come on down and then he's like hazel is gonna fight one of our teammates i guess i i feel like they might have said a name for him i don't remember what it was uh because it's the only time he's referenced and we get a moment of hazel saying i thought i was gonna fight pj so hazel did not know what she was being put up against and what she was being put up against is the football player who was in the cage and he is apparently the best boxer that they have is what they say about him and this is just a six foot something man who is just a a, he's made of he's made of muscle uh he's huge and he's got like american flag war paint on his face and they release him out of the cage and we get a really grotesque fight scene between hazel and this caged student it actually like is interesting because Hazel starts to fight back and it actually looks like Hazel's doing a decent job at one point of like, she trips him. Like literally the first move is he runs straight at her and she puts her foot out and she she trips him and he lands on his face and then he lands a punch, but then she lands like a kick and all this stuff. We're kind of going back and back on blows and then he just like picks her up and slams her and then like deals like a couple really bad blows and she is like knocked out on the ground and tim goes now i know what you're thinking how could a girl who was trained by two convicted juvenile like fighters or whatever um possibly lose this fight And then he goes and he reveals, which I mentioned earlier, he's the one who like figures out the lies because he saw them. And like we get a scene of him calling the uh, juvenile correctional facility and finding out that they never actually were there or whatever. He reveals all of the lies, all of the everything. Meanwhile, Isabel is literally sitting next to Josie and the smile that's on her face just starts to like slowly drop. And it's this sad moment of like Tim point blank says, in fact, they started the fight club to fuck cheerleaders. And that's when Isabel was really like, what the hell? And Brittany kind of gave a knowing look because of the fact that PJ tried to kiss her. And so like 
Brittany wasn't like very surprised by that. And then as the button for this scene, this big ass dude fucking kicks Hazel's head like a soccer ball while she's still on the floor, effectively like knocking her out entirely. And all of the girls from the fight club get up to go help Hazel and PJ and Josie are left excommunicated basically and like seen as bad from the school that fight sequence was like so well choreographed whoever they hired for the like stunt team and everything and stunt coordinators and everything like well done throughout this movie of like making believable fights of these people who have no fighting skills whatsoever but still making it brutal enough and like realistic and raw like well done it's so well edited and shot and put together so well done to the stunt team on that so at the end of that we get the very classic best friends since kindergarten falling out of pj's blaming josie and josie's like i never wanted to do this in the first place you literally made me but like not taking responsibility necessarily for all of the lies and everything that like she wound up telling like by you know playing along with everything and they have a huge a huge falling out which leads to Josie going and finding her old babysitter which is just hilarious so there's a trope here of this is like our older like spiritual guide who is nine times out of ten usually somebody who is not white um who like comes in and and gives the key or like the the piece of information that's missing or like provides the tool to like overcome the obstacle that is who this babysitter is for josie yeah it's like the the old wise one that was part of the main character's lives that comes back and left like right before the final act to help you know find the right you know avenue pathway to go very like yoda-esque vibing but you know common of these teen comedy movies for sure and so she reveals that huntington every single year kills a a it's a tradition a rock ridge football player at the big game so not just like in general literally at the game um and so like starts going down a list of like oh yeah in the past there was like someone who was like waterboarded to death there was like this other horrible thing and she was like oh my god and so uh josie like runs to the football game and catches pj and they make up obviously because josie like vomit info dumps all of the stuff they're they're like oh my god we have to get the fight club back together we have to save everybody you know even though we hate this guy like nobody nobody deserves to die which is very funny uh considering everything that happens at the end of this film and they uh make up with hazel so they get like they they get hazel and the rest of the girls kind of like back in on it but they are unable to get isabel and Brittany back because they're cheerleaders, they're on the cheerleading squad, they're doing the cheerleader thing um, for the big game. And the reason they realize that that the girls realize like something truly is up is there is nobody over on the Huntington side, a visitor side of the football field. It's completely empty. There are no football players, no fans, no nothing. PJ tells Hazel, like, we need a distraction. And Hazel goes, so now you want a bomb. And, <laughs> and like, goes to go make a bomb, goes set up a bomb, whatever. Meanwhile, Josie starts doing some investigating and finds that there are 
like three, which is so funny. There's like a trail of liquid and she smells it and she follows it on the track that's on the outside of the football field and um, follows it all the way to these like large barrels or whatever and pieces together this like ripped piece of paper which is actually so dumb but it's it's like fun font with a little character image of a pineapple in the middle and it just says pineapple juice and this is relevant because earlier we find out that um jeff has an allergy to pineapple juice and so they plan they realize that huntington's plan is to poison jeff um to death with pineapple juice and they're like, but where is all the pineapple juice? And they realize it's in the sprinkler systems. And so these girls just start sprinting onto the field to go save Jeff because Jeff is being pinned down to the field by like four Huntington players that have emerged, you know, since and the sprinklers like pop up and they're clearly like pinning him so that he gets like poisoned or whatever and so then they they say like we need a distraction we need a distraction like before they can sorry this is before they can start the game they say this is kind of important so they're they're like get the cheerleaders to make out and so they obviously do not succeed in getting the cheerleaders to make out uh so pj and hazel start making out that is another like oh can't stand each other to like lovers uh trope which i thought was very funny and uh they start making out and everybody is watching we get the the one head cheerleader who uh had the stalker and also got the water dumped on her we get her watching pj and hazel make out saying oh wait I'm gay. And then Brittany chimes in and says, yeah, I'm not. I just like gay porn. And then Jeff is watching and Jeff goes, this is nothing like porn at all. Wait, is porn even real? And like, it's just just this ridiculously dumb dialogue, like back to back to back. And then they, they stop making out. The game goes on. That's when Jeff winds up getting pinned down. The girls rush the field and we get the most insane fight sequence. I have honestly, like I could not have possibly imagined for this film. Not only are they like beating the shit out of each other. It's this group of fight club girls and the Huntington football team, but also they are mercilessly murdering the Huntington football team. This one crazy girl from the fight club who like has a history of huffing paint somehow gets a sword from one of the mascots and just impales this one football player with the sword and that's our first death and that's like what spikes the rest of the sequence of all of these deaths and these girls just like kicking the shit out of these guys and I mean, the girls are absolutely getting beat up too, don't get me wrong. Um, But Brittany and Isabel wind up like joining in and like the main quarterback is like of the Huntington team is like the final boss and is like the last one to go down. And Brittany and PJ take him down together to show that like Brittany and PJ have like fixed the awkwardness and whatnot between them. And the last shot is honestly just the all the girls standing on the field bloody and all of these dead football players and meanwhile the um rockbridge falls football players the vikings they were useless they were just off on the side of the field watching everything or they themselves being like kidnapped and brutalized by the huntington football players they did not fight at all yeah during the whole fight sequence josie literally picks up 
Jeff and like runs him around the field to get him off the field while trying to dodge all of the Huntington players and like gets him off the field before joining for the end of the fight and everything. It's so hilarious. So they do that and then like it's the it's the classic <laughs> I just started cracking up. Tim starts a slow clap for the murder of all these Huntington football players by this fight club. And he just goes, that's the Viking way. And like everybody like erupts into applause and celebration. Oh, mind you missed this part. Hazel's bomb didn't go off, which is why they had to get the distraction of the cheerleaders kissing, which is what led to PJ and Hazel kissing. So the fans like rush the field. They've all got their go Viking signs literally around all of the dead football players. And then the bomb just fucking goes off, which was so well, like well done, like could have seen it coming, but still like done so well that it, it resonated. And we have our very classic Josie and Isabel get together in the end. They embrace and Isabel's like, you know, you didn't have to start this whole like fight club thing just to date me, right? And my favorite thing is I related to Josie so much throughout this entire movie if we're being so honest because my brain also would have told me to say this because Josie starts going, actually, I don't know if that's really accurate. And then like Isabel like <laughs> stops her and like kisses her. And I'm like, ah, it is perfect. It was so good. At the end of the fight and everything, um, Josie and PJ kind of like have this like we did it kind of thing like we're so good we're best friends again and everything it's like wow like you really killed that guy and Josie's like no no he's not dead right and it's like yep yep he's dead he's dead they're they're, they're all dead we we killed those guys we'll process it later we'll process it later (laughs) oh it was so good it is a hidden gem for sure to say the least like more people need to watch it some other highlights, uh, Mr. G in one of the history classes just goes, the Holocaust. It happened. That was that history lesson. Oh, throughout the movie, there's also that like loner goth kid. He's just this like guy who feels like underappreciated and so tropey of these movies that like he's going to like try and do some terrible shit. But like the teenage girls of the Fight Club group beat him to everything because they do the bomb first. And like he even has a line at the football game being like, that was my idea. They just stole that from me. And it's just so great. Oh, I think that the rest of the dialogue from that beginning scene right before Jeff gets tapped with the car. So Jeff says, the, okay, I'm sorry that I looked at Mrs. Riley and then grazed her left hit. All right. Isabel says, move, you prick, while she's in the car. Josie says, excuse me. She said, move, prick. And Jeff goes, don't talk to me, you ugly bitch, okay? I do not talk to girls in overalls. And Josie says, okay, I may be ugly, but these aren't overalls. And I just like the dialogue in this movie is my favorite part. It's my absolute favorite part. And Josie also starts having an absolute crisis at one point because she like goes down this rabbit hole monologue of being like i'm gonna wind up with um my gay best friend because i'm never gonna have sex no girl is ever gonna date me um and then like basically talking about how like he's gonna become a pastor and i'm gonna be like a proper little like housewife whatever neither of us are ever gonna be happy and our kids are gonna hate us because they're gonna know we're both closeted at the end she just goes and yeah guess what the deacon's fucking the evangelist man he's fucking the evangelist and like (laughs) it's it's so so good and that's bottoms and i really think that people should go go see this movie it's great um and by go see it i mean find it 
watch it. It's awesome. It's going to be part of my movie collection, I think, because there, there's a lot of movies that like you only need to watch once. This is one of those where it's like, I can see myself coming back to it. You know, it's just so good. Yeah, watching it a couple times, catching more things, like when I just need a laugh. Yeah. I hope it doesn't age badly, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I feel like it's one of those things, though, where it like it played upon things already that maybe haven't aged well, but it found a way to like make them funny. Like it was pointing fun at the fact of the things not aging well, not necessarily at the concepts themselves that did not age well. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, and then we're going to quickly just shift into my movie, Tetris. It's a fun movie. It has a lot of historical inspiration, but it is a little Hollywoodified. But like even the two guys that it focuses on, they didn't care too much that like things got like, you know, simplified and, you know, Hollywoodified a little bit just to add to the emotional because everyone involved really just hit the emotional parts of like the actual real story that this is based off of. So Tetris, if you couldn't guess, is is a video game. It is the most popular video game of all time, still to this day. So this movie that is based on it called Tetris, it focuses on the rights debacle of trying to get it out of Soviet Russia in the late 80s. It is notoriously known as a goddamn mess historically in the video game history world but like not many people like normal people just know about it outside of like the video game sphere of everything so it's like it's really cool to see you know people actually do a movie about it and like actually do it justice and have a lot of good fun with it it's so eclectic in style and it just goes and it it's almost like its own style because of the way they choose to they do a different cool job of merging like 8-bit and 16-bit kind of graphic inspiration stuff into the film as well as music and everything and it's it's so well done because I'm I'm sitting here being like I was interested after I saw a trailer because I was like oh this could be really good but also I have this back of the brain fear of like please don't be like the movie pixels please don't be like the movie pixels so so it mainly focuses on our two main characters, Hank Rogers and Alexei Pajitnov. Alexei Pajitnov is the creator of Tetris. At the time, is a Soviet, Soviet Union citizen, so he's kind of just stuck there because he can't really get out once you're there, and like his family's grown up there, because this is Cold War era philosophies and society and everything, so it's really tough and you work for the government, so everything you produce is for the government because they're trying to convert to communism. But especially in this time of Russia, where communism is dying because people who have power within the communist party have been abusing the powers through greed. And so it hasn't been able to be true communism. And that's historically why communism fails in Russia and Throughout the 90s, a whole power shift change and chaos happens. The KGB is alive and and well. Alexei is played by a Russian actor, Nikita Efremov, and he does a great job. Like, you get so much from him emotionally, and he barely says a lot of things throughout the whole movie. And it's just, you get the Russian film vibe, especially focusing around him and his family. And it's just so well done, and I love it, and the atmosphere that produces... And then Hank Rogers, who is this 
he's got a crazy history. He was originally born in the Netherlands, but grew up in New York, I think. And now he lives in Japan and has a family in Japan. And he's played by Taron Egerton. And it's just like, I wouldn't have dreamt that like he would be the perfect casting, but he just sells it so well. It was phenomenal. Yeah, I was really shocked when I when literally the movie started and I was like, oh, and then I just rolled with it. It was so he was so good. Yeah. So this movie, like um, it has similar vibes to like the social network, but it takes it on a more like action comedy approach, but like a little less action and more comedy into it because it's just a crazy story anyways of just like, no way. And it's like, Yep, some of this stuff actually happened. So Hank Rogers, he has his own video game publishing group who works under and gets loans from, I think it's like a bank or something. I, I It's not very clear kind of thing, but he, he owns this software group called Bulletproof Software. And he, in Japan, he kind of tries to get rights for games and sells them for different platforms for arcade, PC, consoles, and such like that. And he's busy trying to get a bigger loan from the people who give him uh, company loans to get the rights to Tetris because he discovered Tetris at the at a Las Vegas video game showcase where he was trying to sell Go, the, the Chinese game Go that was in computer form and he was not being very successful. But then he saw Tetris and he's like, I'm going to buy Japanese rights for it, which he got. And so he was then trying to get more money because he has the great idea of like, I'm going to go to Nintendo and try to sell it to Nintendo to get it on all their consoles, even though I've got complete distribution rights in Japan. So he's already got arcade console and PC rights. And so he's trying to team up with Nintendo to release it on the Super Nintendo or not the Super Nintendo, but the Nintendo Entertainment System. It's so well explained and so succinct. So like, I just suggest watching it because like the whole movie, beginning of the movie is just info dump, but it's so good. And like, you get it and you're like, this is a crazy roller coaster, but I'm still in. I'm still in. I got the momentum. I feel it. I'm on board. It's an interesting movie to try to talk about because it's there's so much technology timeline baked into the movie that it's like you and I kind of have like previous knowledge and understanding of like, this is when Nintendo launched this and this is when this came out. So like, but like trying to, it's like trying to talk about the movie is also like trying to give a history lesson in the background of like uh, Atari and Nintendo. And yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Nintendo's kind of like all game for it. And he's guaranteed like that his company will put the money forward to help for building cartridges but, and then they'll get millions of dollars in shares back from Nintendo and everything. So he gets approved for that. But then they also are like, hey, we want you to fly out to Seattle in our U.S. headquarters of Nintendo. And he has to sign an NDA because they show him the prototype for the Game Boy. So this is like no one knows the Game Boy's coming out. Like this is like revolutionary like during this era of having actual handheld gaming, it is the first and most unique of its kind. And it's so well done. And he is one of like 10 people and they force him to sign an NDA because they're like, honestly, we don't trust you. So like, we're going to sue the fuck out of you if you tell anyone. And he's like, 
oh my God, this is 16-bit and it's got sound and it's like, why is it not in color? And it's like, well, it would need eight batteries. So four batteries, black and white, last for three hours, which is like crazy cool for the time. Like you got to understand for the time, <laughs> like 1987, 88, like it's crazy. He's like, wait, so what's it coded in? Because Hank is actually proficient in multiple game coding and like that's why he got into the video game business and he builds really good relationships with game developers like small game developers and stuff because he has an understanding of game coding and he essentially like quickly whips up a functional version of tetris on the game boy and he's like sell tetris with the game boy at launch and i guarantee you you will sell 20 million of these in the first month alone. Well, because when they were talking about it, they were talking about when the Game Boy launched, the, uh, which is 8-bit, when they launched the Game Boy, they were going to launch it with uh, the new Super Mario Land and sell it. And his his whole thing was like, if you want to sell the Game Boy to kids, launch it with Super Mario Land. If you want to sell the Game Boy to everybody, kids to adults all over the world, sell it with Tetris. And they were like, can you get us the rights? Because he now needs to get handheld gaming rights and like this is unheard of kind of thing. And so he has to like be very strategic about it because he bought the rights as bulletproof software from a company called Mirrorsoft, not to be confused with Microsoft. It's Mirrorsoft who functions under the Maxwell family, who's this famous British conglomerate multimedia empire. If you do know them, you know about their crazy bankruptcy and weird publicity when the father died. So he then goes to the UK, to London, I think, to go talk. And he's like, here's the my agreed upon VHS tape of how we converted it to PC and everything. Because also over the phone, he's been dealing with the son of the Maxwell family who's kind of become in charge of Mirrorsoft. He's the CEO of Mirrorsoft. And he's busy trying to be like, he's he's got too much ego, but he's also fighting the ego that his father inherently has as this massive person. So he's busy trying to like pay the way for himself, but he is just an asshole. On a whim of a phone call, he calls Hank when they were like trying to get it ready for arcade machines. And he's like, you don't have arcade machine rights anymore. Deal with it. And Hank's like, but I, I bought them like, like, you can't do that. It's like, well, we did deal with it. Well, he said, I, I bought it. We I signed paperwork or whatever. And Kevin is the son. It was like, you signed your half. I didn't sign my half, basically, was like how he went about that. It was a total fucking prick. Yeah. So he's he's just a monster business person, honestly. And like, yeah, between all this, he does all his trips to Nintendo and everything Hank does. And then he he's going to the Big Maxwell offices and the Maxwells are busy having a meeting with the guy who's kind of in charge of Mirrorsoft of getting rights to things. And he's been like the go-to person that they send to Russia to see if they come up with anything interesting to make deals with. So Robert Stein, he originally got the contract from Russia with Tetris for the Maxwells. And he's like, I want my money. Where's my money? And he's kind of being like a bit of an annoyance but like he's not getting paid because we we learned throughout the movie that the maxwells don't have money it's being hidden that they don't have money and they're kind of going bankrupt because of money laundering and terrible dealings with money 
So they're having this meeting and Hank just kind of interrupts and he's like, hey, I got my VHS tape for my contract to convert Tetris to PC. Also, I wanted to ask about handheld rights to Tetris. And they're like, what What do you mean? And he's like, I, I can't divulge. And it's like, Nintendo doesn't have a handheld console. Are they coming out with one? He's like, I cannot divulge any information. I was just wondering if I can get the handheld rights. Do we have the handheld rights? And they all like, blank stare look at each other and kevin's like yes of course we have handheld rights we have complete universal rights of all of tetris and there's just an immediate vibe that hank gets of like something might be a little off so i'm gonna go figure this out because he's busy fighting them constantly because he's not he does not have a good relationship with mirrorsoft and everything because of the very evil bullish tactics that they've just kind of been doing because throughout all this he has this is his big thing he sees the future of tetris being the biggest hit forever which he was correct and he's not wrong like he saw he saw lightning in a bottle and he was able to capture it and release it for everyone to share and so his whole thought process throughout all of this is like this needs to be shared that he he puts everything on the line like his family their house is on the line as collateral if like this doesn't work out like this is his last big hurrah and it's very it's a lot of pressure it's a lot of pressure on him and he's not being the best father either throughout all this because this is a lot to deal with it's not an excuse but it's like understandable he learns how he wasn't the best father in some of these instances he gets back to Japan. Then he gets a call. I think it's this movie goes by so quick. It's kind of crazy. It's very fast. Yeah. After leaving the office, though, I guess that's the that's the link that's important is after leaving the office, he offers 25 grand to Stein. He catches Stein outside of the Maxwell's office. Yeah, he, he decides to just bypass the Maxwell's and goes to Stein. And he's like, I'll offer you this right now because he senses that like the Maxwells aren't paying Stein and Stein then considers it. But then Stein needs to go back to Russia to like get a contract for handheld rights because the sketchy contract he made them sign initially gave him. We'll get into that. We'll get into that in a sec. So, so Stein considers it because he's not being paid, essentially. So then Hank gets back to Japan. He then gets a call from Nintendo that Sega somehow has the rights to console for Tetris. And he's like, no way, that's impossible. I think, I don't know, it's messy. So that's that was earlier. So the call he gets is from about um, Stein sold it to Atari. Stein hold, sold the handheld rights to Atari. It was when Kevin called him about, you don't have the arcade rights, that that's what went to Sega. So yeah, Nintendo calls Hank that Atari got the handheld rights to Tetris and they're pissed like this was our thing i thought you guaranteed us rights and hank's like i'm gonna figure this out and he has a full-on meltdown and like destroys his phone and everything because he's just he is being backstabbed and lied to like every freaking turn it's insane and his family arrive home to see the breakdown from the concert that he missed to go see his daughter sing who she's been preparing this big song that she was hoping her dad would come see so it's a it's this very like oh that's so upsetting and so frustrating and so sad that like this person has is having a whole meltdown and dealing with so much pressure but he can't like be there for the things that matter 
in his family as well. Essentially, meanwhile, in all of this, what's going on in Russia is so Alexei works for Elorg. It's this computer, just this computer government entity because all the work you do has to be for the country in Soviet Russia. Like that's a big thing. That's the culture, the forced culture, arguably. It was weird how they just sold the rights to Tetris because he worked on it as like he was inspired, which I loved how they did this in the movie. There's this wooden block game that uses like similar pieces and it's trying it's a puzzle game to try and fit all of the pieces back into this rectangular like a picture frame. It's like a puzzle picture frame, but like different like the shapes of Tetris blocks that you're trying to fit back in there. And he's like, what if I made this into like a video game? And so he made it into a computer game and shared it through floppy disks to people of Russia. It became a big hit within Russia, but like you can't be playing games in Russia at work because that's not okay. (laughs) And so like Robert Stein saw someone playing it kind of thing. He's like, what's that? And then because it wasn't like a real government project, they had to make a very unique contract with Alexi's name attached to it because he did develop it. So like Alexi's boss was very smart and like respectable because he is part of the older generation of Russia that believe communism can save the people of Russia. Like there's this old generation thought, there's the current and there's like a split current generation of get as much power and money as I can before it collapses versus the we just want the country to give us freedom. I like that's very much like what the split feels like of like the current generation trying to suffer through Russia. A few weeks later, Alexei gets visited by a couple of KGB agents and they're so they do it so well of how threatening and crazy the KGB are and just scary. And they're like, so I just want to thank the man who has cost us our country's uh, efficiency of developing a game that we don't get to see any money of that apparently is so popular outside of the country and yet you haven't seen any money of yourself and Alexi's like I don't know what you're really talking about I'm sorry and they just leave and it's just like this weird empty handed threat and they just leave and you're like that's that's cool uh, great and so that, that starts this whole tension that Alexi and his family have have this history with the KGB already because of his father, who was a teacher and one of the other teachers at the school his father's teaching at published a book and it did well, but the KGB didn't like that it didn't do well because the money wasn't benefiting them specifically. So they had him essentially killed and Alexei's father protested. The right thing to do was to protest against that but then he was sent off into the gulags to never be seen again. Understandably, there's a lot of fear and paranoia when the KGB start asking questions. So then essentially we get to uh, Robert Stein is going back to Russia to try and get handheld rights. Hank Rogers decides he's just going to go to Russia to solve the kerfuffle that Nintendo is angry because they lost handheld rights, so he's just going to get handheld rights for himself and try and figure out what's going on because he's just kind of just overwhelmed and confused with everything in this. And then as well as Kevin Maxwell is going to go to Russia and make a unilateral deal with the Russians in general because what he gets from Robert Maxwell, his father, is that the Russians never want money. 
they will trade information, knowledge, and they never want money. And why would they? Like, we are doing them a service by taking things and spreading the Soviet ideology around the world but he's just a fucking monster who's just trying to get rich fast because he lost all his money that's like essentially it they're they're all in russia at the same time and they didn't know it until like the second day of being there like hank when he gets there it's a big culture shock to him and he's a person who's also traveled a lot around the world especially with the upbringing he's had it's kind of crazy for him to have a culture shock because he brutally learns that like as a visitor to the soviet union he's not allowed to go into any government buildings of any kind because that's a crime kgb is very much in this big fight cold war especially with the americans of like anyone who breaks the law is a spy like that's just the idea well and even though he's dutch like he reads through and through as an american and he's there on a tourist visa, too, because he can't get, like, a business visa, so... Because the business visas will take, like, at least three weeks or something before they're approved, and Nintendo's like, so how are you going to, like, figure this out? And he's like, I'm just going to go there as a visitor, and, like, we can't protect you as Nintendo, so good luck! And it's kind of crazy. And he goes, and he... The whole time he's trying to figure out how to get to Elorg, and he he finds a translator... And she helps him, shows him around. And he's like, can you get me to Elorg? And she's like, yeah, sure. But I'm not walking that building because, you know, that's breaking the law, right? I'm not going to help you. And he gets to the lobby of Elorg. And he's like, hey, I'm here to talk about Tetris. And then we get Nikolai Belikov. Yeah. Who is Alexei's boss. What well, he has a happenstance with Nikolai who's passing through the lobby. Which is actually very funny because it's it's almost exactly what happens with his Nintendo meeting as well was the guy that was just coming through the lobby like yeah <laughs> so he runs into nikolai and he's talking about tetris and everything and nikolai's like we we never made that deal nikolai's not actually talking to him he has to get a translator so so hank goes gets the translator and forces her inside to translate for him and it's a whole complicated matter and it gets really intense very quickly essentially nikolai's claiming that hank stole and pirated tetris and it's like a whole thing because hank shows him a game cartridge of tetris for consoles and nikolai's like we never approved that we only did it for computers period and hank's like but mirrorsoft says you have it like made a deal with them for for all rights and i bought them in i bought rights and it's like it's a whole mess and nikolai's like i'm not having any of this like something's wrong and he's skeptical because it's the the mentality of like foreigners are always trying to take advantage of us russians sees enough of a gleam in hank to be like come back tomorrow and we'll discuss this further and that's where we learn like robert stein is arriving that evening and kevin maxwell's arriving and it becomes like this whole like all three of them the next day they're all in different like conference rooms or meeting rooms and they don't know that they're all there and it becomes this whole game it's so soviet it's so kgb manipulation stuff of back and forth and it's so it's so good because it's like they're not sharing any information they're being as so closed as much and they're just trying to get people to talk and give them information and it's so well done because all these people will just talk and so hank illustrates that the contract that they signed wasn't 
specific enough of what a computer defined is. And so he gives them that and Nikolai's like, do I add mouse and keyboard? And I think this is the first time he speaks English to Hank. And Hank's like, you can speak English the whole time. And he just leaves. And Nikolai just leaves. And it's just so good. And so Nikolai gets a new contract written up. He goes to Kevin Maxwell in, in another room. And he's talking about handheld rights. And he's like, we'll talk tomorrow. Just dismisses Kevin completely on this first day. And then goes to Robert Stein, forces him to sign a new contract. Stein is like, give me a night to look over it. And I'll bring it back tomorrow. And Nikolai is like, okay, fine. And then goes back to Hank. And Hank's just like, cool. So we're going to talk about handheld rights. He's like, tomorrow, come back tomorrow. And it's just like, what is going on? And it's just so well done, the pacing and everything. Like this movie is just brilliant in keeping momentum going consistently, but like not wearing you out in like a lot of these sequences. It's, it's captivating. There's a lot of information dumping, but like you're in it. Like if you're plugged in, you're plugged in. That was the thing that I noticed is I was like, this was a movie that had the potential to be, for example, I liked the movie Jobs, but there were a lot of parts of the movie Jobs where I was like, I could have cut this and I wouldn't necessarily have lost anything like, or I'm just, it just dragged. This does not drag at all. Like it's got a lot of information, but I feel like it is, perfectly paced like it's slow enough to understand what's happening but it's fast enough to like maintain your interest hank gets a ride from alexi back to his hotel with the translator in the back and this is where we as the audience pick up what alexi is kind of like very very subtly sharing with us as the audience that hank is not picking up that like he doesn't trust everyone and he's like i can't have you over to my apartment because hank's very much being very American about trying to build a relationship with Alexi of like, let me go buy you dinner. And he's like, you can't buy me, Mr. Rogers, and everything like that. Because like Hank has a huge respect for Alexi because he thinks this game's brilliant. It's so well done. It's just so simple yet captivating because like one of the big scenes of like showing the brilliance of the game is when he's with his wife talking about in very beginning of the movie talking about how much he's kind of put on the line for this game and she's like are you sure about this and he's like do you hear that because they're at home and like both the daughters are captivated by tetris and it's like this is the quietest our house has ever been like this is gonna sell like amazingly and it's true and like so he is he is just in awe of alexi he wants to get to know alexi as like as a colleague, as hopefully a friend, like he he just wants to know everything about him. So Alexi's like on the drive home, it's like, I can't invite you over for dinner or anything because that's against the law here, but you can call me. So then he makes a note on an enfolded piece of paper and hands it to Hank. We learned that he actually gave an address and time to go meet Alexi for dinner at his apartment, which is so clever. But like Hank doesn't pick up of like the KGBs watching everything. Like they clearly have taps on you, Hank. He's just this naive little American, sadly. Well, because they they literally like scanned and registered his ID and passport at the airport because he just bred as an American foreigner. And so he immediately got put on like a list. So then Hank goes and visits uh, Alexi and his wife. His wife is very against him 
initially. She's just very much because she only knows what Alexi's kind of shared, and she's very much on the attack of like people are just stealing stuff from us, like Americans are stealing from us and profiting off of it. And Hank tries to like explain himself, and like it's it gets really beautiful because a relation, a friendship starts to blossom between Hank and Alexi because they talk about Tetris, and like Alexi shows him like the original programming of Tetris, and they play it. And Hank's like, I wish you could like clear more than one line at a time. And Alexi's like, oh, I've never thought of that. Give me a sec. Watch out. And he like programs it and they make it work. And it's like a brilliant addition to Tetris 2.0. You know, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be revolutionary. And it's going to be what we see later that's distributed to the rest of the world. It's so good. But then like there's a knock at the door and it's a, and it's immediately like hide Hank. Luckily, is only a neighbor, but it's also like, we got to go. And Hank's like, no, I like, I want to get to know you more. Like, I don't want to go back to my hotel room yet. Where do you go to hang out? Because Hank immediately picks up from just conversation with Alexi that he is not happy where he is. Like, he's not happy with the state of the Soviet Russia, and he just wants a better life for his family. So then they go out to an abandoned building party which is so Soviet Russia. It's got like, you know, it's got East German vibes with it too and everything of just like, yeah, all these buildings that got built that no one's using because no one can afford it. Yeah. And they're just having a party. And like, we learned that like Alexei likes a lot of the classic stuff and like Hank does share his appreciation for Russian culture uh, at dinner, even earlier of like a lot of people just see the garish toughness of Russian culture, and they don't get to see, they, they keep missing the deeper, loving, uh, romantic nature that Russian culture, literature, music, and everything has, which is very true, especially during this time of the world in their perspective of Russia. Their rave was playing the final countdown, which was so funny, and everybody was singing along, and Hank was like, how does everybody know the lyrics? And Alexei was basically like, a classic like which <laughs> <laughs> is so good because it's like yeah these are like the the party that they're at is full of a bunch of these like younger russian hopefuls for freedom and everything because they talk about how like estonia is starting a lot of protest and trying to separate themselves from the russian city-state that it kind of is and everything and they talk about how they like want freedom they want freedom of expression art they want coca-cola they want levi jeans and it's just hilarious of just like the simple commodities of just you know international trade stuff and so yeah they have this big party but throughout all this as like hank and alexi are having a good time dancing and singing final countdown and everything we get this sequence of of shots of these kgb guys going to intimidate hank's wife in japan but the way that it's shot it makes you think that they're about to crash this rave that hank's at so it's like the way that it's shot is like oh fuck they're coming for hank oh fuck they're coming for hank and then it's oh fuck they're at his wife's office yeah and so then hank gets is going back to his hotel right outside his hotel kgb pick him up what got me is he waves at the doorman for the hotel and they turn their backs on him and he immediately gets put in a chokehold by a KGB member. Yeah, it's it's intense. And KGB is like, go home, don't come back. 
just stop pursuing this. And then they go, thank you for the jeans. And they literally steal his pants. And so he has to walk back into the hotel without any pants on. It's funny because they say, thank you for the Levi's, like which they had just mentioned earlier of like, and so they say, thanks for the Levi's. And then fucking he's just in his boxers and his suit jacket walking back to the hotel. And then he gets back to his room and his room has been tossed. He's starting to get scared. He's starting to get grounded into the crazy, complicated, scary potential that like he might not see his family ever again intensity that he has put himself into. The interpreter, Sasha, shows back up and she's like, they just tossed my room too. And then she is like trying to like comfort Hank and Hank's just like fearful of his family of like if if they might be going after his family or anything and how he's just he just wants he doesn't understand why this is such a big commotion over a video game and then Sasha forces a kiss between them and Hank's very like he pushes himself out of it and he's like I'm I'm married like this is not okay and then we realize oh that's gonna be used as blackmail because Sasha's secretly KGB so then day two of negotiations happen. Robert Stein signs his new contract, so it's only computer rights for Tetris to Mirrorsoft. Hank offers a really, really good deal because it was like a million dollars for rights and then 25 cents per cartridge, I think, for handheld, just for handheld or something like that. Because he's just he is still trying to just get handheld rights. And Nikolai is is very much like this is going to be very beneficial for the country. Like that's that's going to help our economy and everything. Like that's that is the smart deal. But then Kevin Maxwell is also there offering his deal, the Maxwell family deal, which is just like it's it's barely anything, but KGB, mainly the guy in charge who is Valentin. He he's kind of like been this ringleader of the KGB for this whole Tetris debacle. He sees the fall of the Soviet Union, so he wants to make a quick cash grab, and he sees Tetris as his way to make that cash grab. So he actually calls up Robert Maxwell, Kevin's father, makes a deal to get specific money wired to him. Robert doesn't realize Kevin's also in Russia, so then Kevin makes a deal about like another million dollars or something. And so it's like a double win for Valentin. And Nikolai is forced to pick the Maxwell deal without knowing about this secret side deal with Robert Maxwell because the KGB demands it. So he makes them do a letter of intent. It's a letter of intent agreement that they will get all rights, handheld rights included, after within a week a million-dollar deposit to Elorg. And that's very specific. So then... He goes back to Hank and he's like, I time for you to leave. And he goes to escort Hank out. And Hank's like, the entrance is this way. And he's like, shut up, follow me. And he takes him out the back and he gives him a different letter of intent to take back to sign. And it's a different deal that is of what Hank offered because he's hoping he Hank and Nintendo will take it so it'll better benefit Russia and everything than the Maxwell deal. So then Hank flies back out. This next section of the movie just gets crazy because... So much happens in this last, like, yeah, chunk. So during all this, there's more commotion because 
Kevin then does a unilateral decision to go to Nintendo to make a offer directly to Nintendo to cut out Bulletsoft. And so then Nintendo calls Hank and is like, yo, the deal's off. Kevin came to us instead. We're going to go this way. Sorry. Hopefully we can work in the future. And Hank is like, you know, losing his shit more. And then his fax machine goes off and it's a photo of him kissing Sasha as blackmail. And like everything is crumbling around him. I think this is actually the moment he breaks the phone. Like a week goes by and then he gets another fax from Alexi. Alexi secretly faxes and Hank is like, okay, we're going to get on this immediately. Goes to Nintendo and is like, I need your checkbooks. We can get all rights to Tetris if we go to Russia now and make this deal happen because Elorg hasn't gotten their million dollars, so Tetris is still technically up for rights. Yeah, basically, Microsoft couldn't follow through on the offer that was given to them. Exactly. So then Hank takes the two Nintendo guys from Seattle to Russia, and it's intense because, you know, the KGB are immediately alerted that they're there they're trying to immediately get involved. And then a call goes to Robert Maxwell. And Robert's like, you know what? Fine, get my private jet ready because they have a big fight with Robert Stein because Robert Stein signed the new agreement that better defined what a computer is. And that screwed them on the rights because they essentially lost all rights but computer game rights. They failed on their intent of handheld. And so uh, Robert Maxwell's like, it doesn't matter. We're going to go there and we're going to go talk to Gorbachev himself because Robert's good friends with Gorbachev. They get on the private jet after firing Stein from Mirosoft. Uh, and Stein doesn't care. And he does a big kerfuffle of like, you have no money. And Kevin connects the dots finally because he at one point in the movie, he runs into uh, a room where his father and a bunch of other guys are shredding a lot of documents. And Kevin's like, what's going on? But then doesn't press it further, trusts his dad too much when he shouldn't have. And it's clear that the Maxwells are out of money. They're bankrupt. They've been stealing from employee severance to try to keep the company afloat because they've been making a lot of bad deals and everything. And they're on the verge of bankruptcy. So they're going quickly back to Russia. Hank and Nintendo are running back to Russia. They managed to make a deal with Nikolai and Alexei over the rights of Tetris, and it's 50 cents per cartridge, because I think it's 25 cents per Game Boy cartridge, 25 cents per console cartridge, as well as like $5 million for rights for, for console and handheld rights for the next 10, 10 years. They make the deal. Nikolai makes sure they sign the contract, and then they have to get out of Russia as quick as possible. Which is crazy that that's even a part of this. Is like it's like now become a like an action movie of like got to get to the finish point. Like got to get yeah yeah. And meanwhile, the KGB like uh, Valentin gets to Elorg with the Maxwells, learns the Maxwells are out of money. And he's like, why should I get in the way of any of this now? Because if you're not going to pay me and then Robert's like, I promise you 50% ownership share of Tetris if you can stop them from leaving. And then it becomes a literal car chase sequence with action And because Alexi pulls up out of nowhere and tells them to go hop into his car. And it's and it's so well done because we get holding out for a hero by Bonnie Tyler. Man, our movies are connected with Bonnie Tyler. It's so good. And it's the Russian, it's a Russian cover version. So the lyrics are all in Russian. And we get this car sequence that like 
mimics like old like Nintendo video game car racing and stuff like that. And it's so good. Like even like even in some of the live action shots, when a car like has a collision, it becomes like an eight bit car for a hot second and then like becomes back to reality. And it's it's so well done and it doesn't like take me out because I'm just like I'm in it. I was gonna say it didn't pull me out of the movie at all. I just just like wait, that was cool and then kept watching. Like <laughs> it was like an added flair. It's just a little added flair and it was beautiful and great. Like props to them for being like because throughout this movie, there has been like these like title sequences that were like in like in eight and sixteen bit kind of old graphic style and everything to like go between like the different acts levels of the movie. But yeah, and even like to introduce people, like when they introduced Robert Stein, it literally popped up like player three, and then like had a little eight bit version of him. So it's been good about like incorporating like the the graphics, like inspiration of the graphics of the time, because they are much higher quality than they were of the late 80s for sure but it's been great so yeah they do this whole car sequence which is like one of the only real made-up things of this whole movie because all of the them being in russia at the same time was real and they were in different rooms during this tetris rights debacle like so that was actually happened and all of them didn't know that they were there alexi did because he found out through nikolai which is just crazy to think about. So yeah, so Nikolai helps him get out and I love him saying goodbye to Hank and Hank's like, I'm going to do this. And he just stops Hank and is like, there's no time for American emotional expressions <laughs> and ushers <Yeah>. him out because <laughs> Alexi needs to make sure he's not caught, right? But throughout all this, we before this, when Robert Maxwell initially got to Russia, he goes and talks to Gorbachev about donating encyclopedias and stuff. And Gorbachev is like, this is like the end of Gorbachev, where he sees that the Russian people are very unhappy and they want to change and that Russia hasn't committed to communism as he should. Like he's not blind to the greed and the power abuse that people have taken on. And he eyes some of the KGB that are in the room with him. But he can't do much because his hands are a little tied because he's been committed to this ever since he's been in power of russia so it's a very delicate process to like fully dissolve the kgb which is honestly what he wants to do so sasha realizes the corrupt intents of valentin and goes to give the information to gorbachev gorbachev then sends out someone to go arrest valentin and they do because valentin chases the wrong plane that he thinks hank and the nintendo guys are on because they, they all think they're going to Japan immediately. And no, they got onto a plane to like Vietnam instead because they just went to the ones leaving the absolute soonest. We'll figure out plane tickets later to get us back to where we need to go, which was so good of a of a twist. And then Valentin gets arrested and he has this whole tirade about how Russia's dying and communism's dying and the fall is coming and everything, which he's not wrong, but he's also an evil, corrupt person things become happier we we cut back to hank back at home and he set up their living room for like this impromptu concert with his daughter to try and make amends for how bad of a father he's kind of been the last couple months in this whole tetris debacle and everything and you know informs his wife that like they're gonna be millionaires like they did it like 
we're going to be good and like shows her a check for like half a million to start from Nintendo, which is like crazy money. And then we get to the end of the movie where we're kind of seeing the crumbling of the Soviet Union, like walls are being broken down. And it's like kind of this like semi montage sequence that we're cutting back to like Alexei and his family. And his wife brings him a package and she's like, it's from Hank and it's the Game Boy. And then we as the audience get to see in the back plane tickets and Hank is able to fly Alexei and his family out of Russia to, I think they met up in Hawaii, I think. I think he flew him to Hawaii is what the, somewhere in the United States. But I believe it's Hawaii because I think Hank and his family moved to Hawaii later because that's where he and his family kind of lived after this whole Tetris rights debacle thing and flies Alexei's family out. And they have this whole, they have this other moment where Hank's like, is it now okay to dive into my American emotional side and they hug and it's like a great bromance and you're like, ah, oh, this is so good. And it's just, it, the movie just kind of ends that way. It's so good. And like it explains like Tetris is still the most popular game of all time. And I just, I just love this movie because like it plays off of the sound design of like going back to like the 8-bit, 16-bit kind of quality music as well. Like a lot of the score is inspired by a lot of that, but like evolves beyond that. Like even from the beat, Beginning where we like faintly hear the original Tetris theme and it like gets expanded upon so subtly just in the score itself as we're like being explained the initial like here's the current info dump of the beginning of the movie get ready for the roller coaster that it is it's just so good and it's such such a good vibe like like the Bonnie Tyler song holding out for a hero is played multiple times in this movie through instrumental covers. There's a Japanese cover of it. And then there's the Russian cover during the big car chase sequence. Like it's so good. Like it, it's so good. It like this movie knows what it was doing and expressed it so well and in and out through all of the aspects, visual sonic design, like everything about it is like nostalgia for that late eighties video game vibe. But like, also grounding it in today's storytelling style and everything. And it's just, it's so well married together and I love it so much. It was a really beautifully produced movie. I, I like, let alone the storyline, just the, the concept and, and the execution of it, I, I thought was great. And then a thing I just kind of like haven't touched at all throughout this movie, Hank Rogers makes all of the video game analogies all the time. Like when he's initially talking to Nintendo about rights for Tetris, he's comparing it to Mario and Luigi and their partnership and how he wants that. And it's just like crazy. And he does it throughout the whole movie. And it's not even funny. Like it's it's so serious. Like he's literally talking to the CEO of Nintendo making a Mario and Luigi reference. Like it and it just completely serious yeah to the point of like he even goes like to like what is mike tyson without the guy he punches out and punch out and it's just or knockout whatever the game's called and it's just so hilarious <laughs> people involved in this movie did a good job and it's and it's like it's great to see them still have like a respect for like all the people involved like like for alexi and for hank as real people because they are still real people to this day. They're still alive and kicking. And friends. And friends, yeah. They are like lifelong friends friends now. And it's so cool because once Alexei and his family got out of Russia, he got a job with Microsoft for a while, making puzzle games for them until about 2005. I'm 
don't know what he's kind of been doing since, but I know when this movie was coming out, he and Hank toured a lot with interviews and stuff about the movie because they actually really liked the movie and they were like able to like be part of some of the process of the movie and they're like gr- glad someone was telling the story in a good way and not like super Hollywoodifying it, but like they would take notes from them of like this kind of happened like this, but then sometimes they're like riding a car chase sequence that never actually happened in real life, but we're doing it and they couldn't like fight that at all, which is fine, but like they didn't care because they understood what this movie was going to do at the end of the day, which was kind of great. Which is a wonderful perspective to have. So after the 10 years was up with the contract with Alexi for Tetris, he and Alexi made the Tetris Corporation, or uh, they made their own company, Tetris Incorporated. So they would then own universal rights for Tetris themselves kind of thing, which was a really smart move because that allowed Alexi to actually benefit from Tetris and they made like, you know, newer versions of Tetris and stuff that of course we've seen over the years. But Hank has started many nonprofits in Hawaii after relocating to Hawaii. And it's a lot of like sustainability, energy sustainability and food sustainability and work sustainability throughout Hawaii. He has like a lot of good foundations. So it's really cool to like be like they're like the good nerds of like the 80s. Like they 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 emanate like the Bill Gates kind of vibes of like, yeah, I created something cool that everyone's loved, but like I am going to give back to the world because that shit matters because without the world, none of this would be here anyway. So like it has a lot of that good, good vibe. Yeah. You got anything else about Tetris? Nah, just a solid movie, I feel like as well. Definitely a different vibe, but but I think we picked like two really enjoyable films for this week. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Next week, we are going to finish season two of Breaking Bad. I'm so pumped. I feel like it's going to fuck me up. I know, I know, I already know, I already know. I don't know what I know, but I know, you know? It's, <laughs> it's Breaking Bad. You've, you've been through season one. You're expecting shit to go crazy, and it's, it's gonna. I'm not going to divulge how much but it's gonna, I'm gonna be there for you. I'm gonna support you. We're gonna watch it and then we're gonna talk and work through it emotionally together. It'll be great. Great. Cool, 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 cool. To to specify, it's uh, episodes 11 through 13, the final three episodes of season two. So that's exciting for us. But yeah, in the meantime, yeah, like and follow us on all the platforms. Give us comments about ideas of future movies or genre ideas, movies, other big 2023 hidden gems that you have that we should check out if we don't know about like we're we're here for all of the recommendations here because you know there's just a lot of media out there and it's hard to keep track i think that'll do it for us this week at resonant reels i've been chandler i've been adam and we'll see you next week see you then